my one prayer as I was walking up here was please let my glasses be unfoggy enough I can read my notes. start with the reading of the word. We're in Genesis chapter 45 and smid to 46 and I will be reading from the New International Version. I'd like y'all to follow along if you brought your Bibles. <clears throat> then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one but Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing in your land. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall have the region. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, Do this, take some carts from Egypt, for your children and your wives, and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because all the best of Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of, cloths, five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up 
out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive, and I will go see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And he spoke to Israel, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. The word of the Lord. So we've been following this line and this family all through Genesis. We've been following along with the story of God's creating a good world to fellowship, to share in fellowship with human beings. And the story of how bad choices by our forefathers uh, spoiled that plan and how God has worked continuously since then for the redemption of the world and to restore to the world the blessing he originally intended for it. We've, we've talked about how that focus came down to one man, Abram, and his descendants, and we've been following the story here. We talked about Jacob and his sons and his son's jealousy of their brother Joseph, their murderous jealousy of their brother Joseph, and selling him into slavery. And last two weeks, we've talked about the family having to come to Egypt to, to get sustenance because there's a famine in the world. And uh, Joseph observing them and testing them. Last week, we talked about their second visit back and uh, this rather elaborate test that Joseph had arranged of hiding the cup in Benjamin's bag and sending them away and then sending a servant after them to say, why have you done this? And talked a little bit last week about how that could seem like kind of a, a cruel trick. But Benjamin doesn't know the characters of his brothers at that point. He's only, they're the brothers that sold him into slavery. They're the brothers that wanted to kill him. That was his last information on them. And the first time they came down to Egypt to get grain, they left another brother as a hostage, went back to Canaan, and, and weren't going to come back. The only reason they came back is because the famine was longer than they Thought. So as far as, as far as Joseph can tell, it's business as usual. But when last week we came to this story of the hidden cup and him testing them in it, he said, you know, I, why did you do this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the one of you that stole the cup and bring him back. And he said, the rest of you can go. 
and he's giving them a test. Are these going to be are these going to be the same kids they've always been? Are they going to leave their brother and save their own skins? And they don't. They don't. They all come back and they argue for the safety of their brothers. And it's at this point that we come into the story today, and it it breaks down Joseph. He sees this, and the first thing is he couldn't control himself. And he, he had to, he's like, everybody, get out of here, leave the room. You know, he's, he's almost crying. Well, he is crying. Um, he's emotional because he sees that this is, this is how brothers should be. This is probably how he wished the brothers had been when he was there. And now he can see it, and it's, it's too much for him. And at this point, he feels safe to make himself known to them. Now that, a couple things happen. One is he's crying so loudly that the Egyptians hear it and news of it reaches Pharaoh's household. I wonder what Pharaoh's thinking because Pharaoh's doing pretty well right now because of Joseph. He's made Joseph, you know, second in charge and, and except with respect to the throne as, as, as powerful as Pharaoh in the land. And now his servants are, are coming and saying, um... There's something going on at Joseph's place, and he's crying real loud. This this probably not initially received as good news by the Pharaoh because he's 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 benefited a lot from this young man. Or at this point, he's probably not quite so young anymore, but from from Joseph. And so Joseph he tells his brothers, "No, it's really me. Is is my father still alive? Is he still good? I mean, I I know he was before, and you say he is, but is he, is he really okay?" And the brothers aren't able to answer because they're scared. The first time they were up, they were tested and grilled by Joseph, and they thought, oh, our, our sin has found us out. It's, it's because of our, you know, because we wanted to murder our brother and we sold him into slavery that this is happening to us. And they think that is just karma, that this brought them before this powerful man. And, well, not karma, but they think that it's their own sin finding them out. Now it's not just some ruler of a foreign country. This powerful man turns out to be the brother they sold into slavery. So their first reaction isn't probably, oh, hey, hooray, Joseph, good to see you. Um, They're terrified. And then Joseph says to his brothers, come here. Also probably not... uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you, you know, when you're in school and you get uh, called to the principal's office, your first thought isn't probably I'm about to receive some great honor, some high praise. No, your first thought is I'm, I'm in trouble. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now he... He doesn't hide what they did. He names their sin. He's like, yeah, this, this is me. This is this is the one. But he, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't, I'm the brother that you sold into slavery, and now you're in trouble. He's like, do not be distressed, and don't be angry with yourselves. I'm telling you what you did, but this is what happened. Don't be angry with yourselves, because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. He's saying, he's 
bringing them into that story that we've seen so far throughout creation. Man makes bad choices, and God turns those bad choices into vehicles of blessing to move his plans along. It's that whole, you know, Romans 8 thing, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. We talked about this when they first went down for a famine to get food for the famine. Famines are kind of common in the Middle East. And it wouldn't have been unusual for there to be a famine. And we've seen famine before this in in the account in Genesis, and people have gone to Egypt to get food. So that part wouldn't have seemed unusual to them. The the second year of the salmon, the the salmon, sorry, the second year of the famine might have taken them a little bit by surprise, but they're still, they're going to go back to Egypt and deal with it the same time. Joseph's now telling them, oops, it, it's just getting started. This is, this is not something you, you've seen before. This is going to be seven years. And that's kind of neat, because sometimes when we're looking for a solution to a problem, and, and we're part of God's story, we come looking for a solution to a problem, and the problem is actually much bigger than what we're aware of, but graciously, God is not only dealing with the problem they're aware of, but delivering them from the much bigger problem they, at this point, didn't even know they had. So he says, you were in worse trouble than you thought, but it's okay. And God is working this for your deliverance. God sent me ahead of, ahead of you to prepare, to save a remnant. He's like, God is looking after the blessing he promised to our family. I know you intended this. This happened out of jealousy, but God is using this because God is standing over and watching over the promises he made to his family. So then it wasn't you that sent me here, but God. He tells them about the favor he's found, and he says, now now go back to the Father, our Father, and tell him I'm still alive. Tell him to come join me here. And there's this wonderful picture of of restoration. I talked last week, I said that probably the title, if I was going to give it, would be Unexpected Blessings, Redemption, and Restoration, Part 1. And this is Part 2. And we're already beginning to see something. We see kind of a restoration and a resurrection in the lives of their brothers. This was an uncaring family. This was a family that was so jealous that they were going to kill their brother because he was more favored than them. Now this is actually a family that is offering to lay down their own lives in ransom for each other. So that's the beginning of restoration there. Also, we have restoration and reformation of Joseph at this point, because when we're first introduced to Joseph, the the first thing we know he did was tattle on his brothers. When he's talking about the dreams he has, to his brothers and his father when he's a young man. He's, he's kind of focused on how great he is. Now we have a transformation and a restoration of Joseph because now he has compa- great compassion on his brothers and on his father. He's, he's telling, look how great this is. I have all this favor with Pharaoh. Essentially, his dreams have come true. Um, he is in a position where all the world's bowing down to him. But now he's talking, not talking about it in terms of how great he is. 
He's like, look at what I can do for you. Look at the blessing that I've come into. So we have the reformation of the brothers, and we have the reformation of, of Joseph here. And you can see it. You know, he's just holding his brother Benjamin and weeping. He's, he's a cha They're changed men, and he's a changed man. And I love this. When the news of this reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. I think they were probably pleased uh, for a number of reasons. One, they just heard that Joseph was crying, and, uh, you know, I'm sure Pharaoh was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what, what horrible thing has happened? You know, has he, has he had another interpretation of a dream and we're in trouble? But now he knows, oh, hey, it's good news. He was also happy because Joseph was blessed. This is somebody that had done him great good, and now he can receive the report that, hey, this is a blessing that's happened to Joseph. So he's got to feel a little good about that. And maybe a little more selfishly, his, his kingdom has profited greatly from Joseph being in the position he is. Maybe he's thinking, I wonder if the other brothers are, you know, good. You know, it's, this is a good thing. Maybe, maybe we're going to get more of a good thing here. And uh, he's eager to bring that whole family here. For one thing, he can, he can tell this is a blessed line and... If he blesses them, and if he brings them in and shows them favor, he would logically expect that some favor and blessing would accrue to him, which it does later on. So he he tells tells Joseph to to make these arrangements, send these carts, send these donkeys. Now Joseph's already told his brothers to do this, so Pharaoh's saying the same thing. And anytime things are repeated in the Bible, it's or anytime things are repeated in Hebrew storytelling especially, it, it's reinforcing the point. Um, so this is really, this is kind of doubling down on the, on the bringing of, of Jacob and his family into Egypt. You get that this is important, that this is a good thing. One of the things I love about the, the, the more you study scripture, the more you realize it's constantly referring to itself and reinforcing the story it tells. So this, this double invitation is just doubling down on, on what God's going to intends to do. So he tells them, yeah, take the cards. Go. And he tells them, never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. Now there's a bunch of things in, in today's text that really just really spoke to me just because this it's kind of a challenging week for a number of reasons, and, and it's always a real blessing when what you're kind of engaging with to prepare to talk about on Sunday is, is bringing blessing to your life. That's always really good. But this notion of, of, you know, don't even worry about your possessions because the best of Egypt is going to be yours. I kind of think of that in terms of, of the promises we have as believers. Sometimes this, this is a very uncertain world. But it's like, don't, don't even worry about what you have now, you know? The, the best of heaven is, is going to be yours. So you can, you, can, you can forget about that. Don't worry about that. Press on. Keep going towards the, the invitation that you have, that you've been invited into, because, because there's blessing ahead of you. And this is the other part that really spoke to me. Well, the brothers, they get back to Egypt, and they tell tell their father. 
they told him in verse 20, uh, 26, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Well, it's, it's more than Jacob was stunned. Um, the actual Hebrew, uh, and, and if you have an ES, uh, in ESV, it will say his heart was numb. And that's a pretty good, actually, um, translation of the, the actual Hebrew behind that. But it's like the very core of his being, the part of him that, that it gets translated heart, but the, the center of the being, the center of who he was, was paralyzed. Well, in psychology, there's this, this concept called learned helplessness. And uh, I, I remember learning about this in college and, and thinking, boy, people that do psychological experiments are really cruel. Because they did, they did a test. They did this kind of exercise to show this. And they had a tank with fish in it. And there's a bunch of prey species of fish and a predator fish. And you start out with the predator in the tank, and it can eat the prey fish, and everything's fine. And then you put it in a glass container in the aquarium with the prey fish, but it's in this little container, and it can't get out to the rest of them. And because it's glass, it doesn't see it. And so it will start trying to go after the prey fish, and it will keep swimming into that glass wall and bumping its nose. And after a while, it learns it can't get to the prey fish. Then you take that glass thing out, and now it's swimming with the prey fish again, and it will starve to death, even though it's there and there's nothing preventing it from, from achieving its goals. It won't do it because it's learned that it doesn't matter. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't help anything. Well, when the brothers were preparing to go back to Egypt the second time, their father had told them, no, you know, I've, I've already lost my son Joseph, and now your brother Simeon is down there as a prisoner. You know, don't, because I, I can't lose anymore. I've already lost enough. And finally, at the end of it, he's just resigned. He just says, fine, go take Benjamin, and whatever happens to me happens to me. He has gotten to a numbed an almost apathetic state. He, he doesn't care. Life can get you into that position very easily. There are so many disappointments and discouragements in life that they can get you to where you forget. He forgot. There's, all, there's a promise from God of what's going to come through him. And not just his life depends on it. God has said, I am going to bless the whole world through you and your line. But circumstances have made him forget that and not focus on that. His heart became numb, paralyzed within him. But they kept talking and they told him everything that Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father revived. This is really cool. This is, this is the part that really ministered to me. The spirit of their father revived, and Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is alive, and I will go see him before I die. This is a little double resurrection passage. 
Because when it talks about the spirit and their father revived, the word for revived there is the same. It gets translated, bring back from the dead in other places in the Old Testament. It means to have life. It means to certainly have life. So you get this picture of Joseph who was numbed, who was defeated. He suddenly brought back to life. And when he says, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive, that's a related word. And there's a play there. For him, he's been brought back to life. And in his life, his son Joseph has been brought back to life. So this is a double resurrection for him. And then this concludes with just a really nice phrase that kind of puts this thing back together. I talked last time about how in this narrative of the second trip down to uh, Egypt, God is largely absent. Not that he's not there, but we don't see him spoken of as a character. We don't see him acting. We get a little bit in this chapter with Joseph attributing things to him, but it's, it's very much uh, like, like I said, uh, the book of Esther, which is a story of God's redemption that never mentions God. Up to this point, God isn't mentioned in this narrative. But once we get to uh, chapter 46, we're going to get this really nice thing that's going to let us know what's going on. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Well, this is really neat because it's a callback to Genesis 26, 23, with the first altar that his father Isaac had built at Beersheba after he had trouble with the neighbors there. He'd, he'd had his shepherds and the shepherds of the, of the people of Canaan there had, had fought and argued and they'd finally made a treaty and Isaac had to built this altar at Beersheba and he called on the name of the Lord. And in verse 23, oh, that's the story. In verse 20, starting in verse 23, into verse 24, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So this is a callback to that promise. This is God framing this whole thing, saying everything that's happened, this is still part of the story. This is still what I'm doing. I'm the same God that was with your father. I'm the same God that was with Abraham. I haven't abandoned you. Everything is still going the way it's supposed to be going. It can be, you know, one of the, one of the problems that for stories that go on for a very long time, much like our lives, is you can, you can lose that first love. You can lose that sense that you're part of something. It's been, you know, 1950 years, give or take, since, since Jesus left this planet. It, it could be tempting when you look around to say, how long, God? You know, or is, is this still part of the plan? Or are we still here? But 
Yes, God has been and will be working out his plan. We have this position as Christians where we're, we've already received the promises of God in Jesus. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken through into the world. The order of things has been changed. The ruler of this world has been defeated. But not quite all the way yet. We're very much like the children of Israel here. We're very much like the family of Jacob. We have the promises. We've received blessing. They are receive, receiving <coughs> blessing. But it's not, it's not completed yet. But it's going to be. There are some really neat things at the end of this story. They're settled in Goshen. This is a picture. This is kind of a second Garden of Eden. And uh, just a couple of little details. We're not going to get to the text there. But when it numbers all the, the grand grandchildren, granddaughters of Jacob that come down with him, it names all the kids. And the total comes to 70. That, that's a little kind of Hebrew joke. 70 is the number of completion. 7 and 70 both stand as numbers of completion in the Old Testament. And after the flood, when it talks about the peoples of the earth, all the, you get the table of nations in Genesis 10, all the descendants of, of Noah. It says, you know, it, it lists 70. So this is a way of saying, this is, this is like a second Adam, and that all the blessings that God originally intended to come through Adam and that he reconfirmed with Noah are, are still on the table and they are going to come through this family. So everything that's happened has just served to advance God's purpose and God's purpose is still going forward. And um, it's just going to get bigger and bigger from this. It's going to, you know, obviously there's going to be a nation, the nation's going to fall but it is going to be well-established. One of the things I talked about a little bit last week is up to this point, we've been talking about the favored child in each generation, you know, Jacob rather than Esau, Isaac rather than Ishmael. Well, once you have this restoration of the brothers in Egypt, it's going to be the family. It's never again until Bethlehem is going to come down to one person. So this act of restoration God did, this act of healing in this family God did, is going to establish a people group and a nation. Well, that is the family that God worked through and is still working through to bring restoration to the world, to bring blessing to the world. And we're the heirs of that through Christ. So we're getting ready to celebrate the advent of Christ into the we are celebrating the advent uh, of the advent of Christ into the world. <coughs> and no matter how long it's been, no matter how numb our hearts might have become in the waiting, we serve a God of resurrection and his purposes are firm and he will restore us and he will restore all things. God bless you. Morning. If you have your Bibles, will you open them with me? And we're going to be reading from Joshua chapters 5 and 6 today.
Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came up out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied. But, I, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have, come, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry and do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, encircling it once. 
Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the, trum while the trumpets <laughs> kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when all the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in. And they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brother and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men, of Josh, hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. The word of the Lord. Well, for some time now, we've been telling the story of God's plan to redeem his creation. We, you know, we started with the account of the creation and how everything was good, but how it became corrupt through man's bad decisions. And then we talked about God's plan to rescue and redeem that creation through one man and his family, who he was going to make into a nation, Abram, who became Abraham. We talked about how his plan was to bless him and his descendants and through them bring blessing and redemption to the whole world. We saw how his family went to Egypt and became a great nation there. We saw how they suffered in Egypt and were brought out. We talked a little bit about their wandering in the desert for 40 years because the first time they had been brought to the Holy Land, when they had gone in, even though God had already done all these miraculous things for them in bringing them out of Egypt, they were afraid of the people in the land and their their spies that they sent in, they sent in 12 spies, and 10 of them said, you know, there's giants there. It's, it's, 
it's too hard for us. And, you know, in their own hearts, they were weak because of what they saw in the land. Now, I mean, that can be a very natural reaction to see the size of the problems and to forget what God's already brought you through. I, I would point out that there's a little, there's kind of a special element of unbelief because out of the, out of the spies that went in, one of the spies that said, hey, we can take these guys, no problem, was the one who had been Israel's military commander up to that point. The guy who had led them in all their successful battles up to that point said, oh yeah, we can do this. So <laughs> lets you know that there really was this kind of ingrained way of thinking. And some of that is probably a necessary, or not necessary, but an understandable reaction to having been slaves for so long. God has freed them, but you know, it's easier to free your, your body than it is to free your mind of those habits. And we're going to see that that first generation out of Egypt is just going to constantly be going back to those habits. But this is a new generation now. We've, as we've just read, that, that generation has passed away, and this is a newer generation. And in the retelling of this story, we're almost getting a restart of Exodus. Like we had the Red Sea parted, Last week we talked about the Jordan parting, and this is the second time. This is the second time God has dried up waters for his people. But this time there's kind of a turning of things on its head, on their heads. This time it's the people in the land that are hearing about these Israelites, and they're like, you know, they. The Jordan dried up and they crossed over. And we know from the story of, of Rahab and the spies that they were also calling to mind that, hey, 40 years ago, the waters of the Red Sea dried up and the Egyptian army, which was the superpower at the time, got drowned. And everybody's really scared. Um, do you remember what it was like when we were, uh, we, we certainly didn't know how bad it was going to get um, with COVID here, but do you remember what it was like when COVID was in China and, you know, somewhere around last February when we heard about this disease out there and, and we heard it was coming, but we didn't know how it was going to manifest? These people have had 40 years of something like that. There's these guys that came out of Egypt. They're somewhere out in the desert. The only reason you know about them is because every once in a while they're knocking off one of the kingdoms on the other side of the the Jordan, so there gets to be a lot of, a lot of fear, and the, the reputation of them gets built up. So now it's the Amorites and the Canaanites who are trembling with fear and unconfident uh, before the Israelites. And that's going to be a very good thing because they're going to need them to have that fear for a little while. Because the first thing God has them do when they come into the come into the land that's been promised with them is to renew their covenant with them. Now, he's going to have uh, Joshua take flint knives and circumcise the entire population of men of military age. Now, this is renewing the covenant that God made with Abraham, and specifically, when God gave the covenant of circumcision uh, in Genesis 17, it was right after he had told Abram, that he was going to give him that land, that very specific land. So when they're doing this, they are celebrating that covenant 
that God made with Abraham that this would be their land. They are enacting their side of the covenant of, of that promise that this is now going to be their land. They're, they're taking a step of trust in the Lord. One of the reasons they're taking a, a step of trust in the Lord is these, these are not people being circumcised on the eighth day as a little boy, as, as Israelite law had. They you know, didn't have that opportunity wandering in the desert. So they're all being circumcised as adults. This is going to incapacitate them for a little while. Earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have uh, a story of Israel's sons tricking a town and saying, hey, we're going to make an, a, an alliance with you, but you guys have to become circumcised like us. And the town says, oh, great, you know, we'll, we'll do that. And they circumcise all their males. And then while they're recovering, the uh, sons of Israel go in and slaughter them all. So yeah, right after that, there's a period of time where you're not going to be a very effective soldier. And here, God is having the whole army incapacitated. At this point, a, a small group of Canaanites probably would not have had much trouble taking them out. But it doesn't happen because the Lord has placed the fear of the Israelites in the hearts of the people of that region. So they celebrate. They set themselves apart. They're renewing that covenant. And this is going to do something neat because the Lord, when it's all done, the Lord says to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What was the reproach of Egypt? And you'll get a lot of different answers to what the reproach of Egypt, of, of Egypt was. But I think part of it was that in their hearts, the, the Israelites still had that identity as, as people who had been oppressed in Egypt and were thinking like Egyptians. We see this that right in the, in the uh, episode of the Golden Calf, right after God tells them, I'm not, a God, I'm not a God like those other gods. I am the God. You don't worship me the way you worship the other ones. You don't make an image of me. And gives them those instructions. By default, as soon as they're on their own, they think, well, what do we do? We know how you worship a God. You make an image of him. And they make a golden calf. And, and specifically, um, they, they link that golden calf with Yahweh, the Lord that brought them out of Egypt. And, you know, right after he said, don't make an image. But they still have those patterns in their mind. They still have that thinking of, of doing things the way of the Egyptians did. But this is God saying, nope, I've rolled that back. Now you're back on track. You're my chosen people. You're the vessel that's going to bring blessing to the world. I'm going to bless you in this place, settle you in this place. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. What's past is past. And then kind of completing this picture of kind of restarting the exodus, they're going to celebrate Passover. And when they celebrate the Passover, they have unleavened bread made from the grain of the land. And the day after they've eaten the produce of that land, the manna stops. Now it's interesting because they had already taken territory from the kings of the Amorites on the eastern bank of the Jordan. 
and had settled some of their tribes there. Last week we talked that some of the tribes had taken land there, but they still sent their warriors in to go with Israel. So they'd already taken land and were able to get grain and, and things from there, but the manna still continued. Now the manna is ending because now they are in the land that was always promised to them, and this is now God's provision for them so he can end, he can end the supernatural provision of manna. The timing of the crossing of the Jordan coming into the Holy Land is, is really important because when it talks about the river being dried up, it talks about how it was at, at its greatest flow because it was at the time of the harvest. If Israel had come in in the spring and fought everybody, not only would they have to fight everybody, but then they would have to immediately, while they're fighting, start farming to provide for themselves. But the timing of their entry into Canaan is at the time of the harvest. So when they conquer the people living there, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, and the Hivites, they're going to be provided with food right then and there. They're not going to have to worry about that first season. So there's a lot of provision in that timing. It lets you know that this is, there is, God's timing is, is perfect, even even when it looks odd, even when the things we're called to do don't seem to make sense, God has this perfect timing that takes all things into consideration. I'm sure the first thought of, of, the, of the Israelites when they came and confronted Jericho, and they're crossing right in front of one of the strongest cities in Canaan, Wisdom says you sneak in the back door. They cross in front of one of the strongest cities of Canaan. What do they do when they set up camp in front of Canaan? They incapacitate themselves for a period of time. To, to the natural mind, this doesn't seem like wisdom, but it is the plan of God. And as we're going to see, God, God is working providentially. So then we come to this story. They've celebrated Passover. The manna has stopped, and they're advancing on Jericho. Joshua, as a good leader, is going to scout out the situation. And he sees this warrior with a sword in his hand. And he says, are you for them or for us? And the guy says, neither. This is important. Sometimes you can get, the, you can get to this way of thinking, and, and especially in, we are in a very prosperous situation in this country, and we can kind of tend to think that God comes into our lives. You will see people writing books like, Your Best Life Now. But it's not God coming into our lives and adding to our lives. It is God inviting us into his life and his cause. And that's the greatest blessing because Truth to tell, we don't always know. Our, our vision for our own lives is probably not the best for them. It's certainly not as good as God's vision for our lives. So it's not a case of God coming and bringing us to our goals. It's God inviting us into his goals. So the commander of the army of the Lord very succinctly says, I'm not for either of you, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And one of the things to remember here is that the ultimate mission of Israel is not just to inherit this land, 
but to become a blessing and a vehicle of redemption for all of creation. So this isn't just God picking out one tribe. And so it's, it's very significant that the commander of the army replies, neither. He says, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, when we get to the description of what happens at Jericho, if, if you're just thinking of it as an isolated thing, it's, it's, it's a miraculous story in and of itself. But you're given these instructions where for six days, Israel is going to march around the city once, following the Ark of the Covenant with, with a guard of soldiers in front of it as well, and then go back to their camp. And nothing is going to happen till the seventh day. Well, if you're reading this in the context of the covenant and the covenantal instructions that Israel has been given in the desert at Sinai, you're going to realize that if they do this six days and on the seventh day something else happens, there's something that's guaranteed to fall on one of those days. Anybody want to take a guess? Sabbath, yeah. One of these days is going to be the Sabbath. And I am going to suggest to you that the way this is written with the climax on the seventh day, that seventh day is taking the place of the Sabbath. Well, not taking the place of the Sabbath. It is a Sabbath. God has established this rhythm of Sabbath, setting his people apart from all the other peoples. It's not just that it's good to rest. Yes, everybody needs rest. That's why we all sleep at night. But the Sabbath is an acknowledgement that despite all our efforts, despite all the things we do, our success in life is not a result of our efforts it is a gift from God, that without God's blessing, without God's gifting, all our efforts are in vain. And the Sabbath is a way of taking one day and saying, I don't have to always be striving. I'm not tied to this biological, you know, dog-eat-dog world where if, you don't, if you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. That's, that's not the world that our Creator has given us, and that we can rest and trust in our Creator. So when we get to this seventh day, we get a really graphic illustration of this. What does the army of Israel do? Nothing. They follow, they step, follow the steps that are pre prescribed for them, and they have a worship service. And then the walls fall down, and they get to go in. So this six-day, seventh-day thing is actually a Sabbath pattern, and it is showing that Israel's greatest accomplishment in this conquest of Canaan, is going to come to them just as a gift of the Lord. The Lord has said to Joshua, Behold, I've already given you the city. I've given you the city and the king and, and all the warriors within it. Just be faithful to what I've, what I've taught you about. That's, we have this wonderful promise in Ephesians that we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's already prepared in advance for us. This is the method 
of the advance of the kingdom, we're faithful to do the steps that were shown, and then we just trust God for the success of it. Very early on, the first time I got into ministry, I used to have tremendous anxiety about making sure that certain things I did were effective. And I eventually came to understand it's better to be faithful than to be effective. We're going to be responsible for our faithfulness to what we're called to do. The effectiveness of it is God's. We plow the fields, we plant the seeds, we water the seeds. But what makes the seeds grow, that's, that's God. And we get that just that wonderful picture of that here in the fall of Jericho. There's this, it's this seventh-day rest, and it delivers this powerful city into their arms. Now, there's some really interesting things in here, just a historian, so you're going to get a little history here. But when they're talking about the things that are devoted to God and that they're not to take into their own, it talks about the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron. And that probably sounds a little weird. We would think, yeah, gold and silver, treasure, we recognize that, bronze, sure, that's, but iron? Well, the Bible isn't a once upon a time story. This is the history of God relating to his people in history. And the best dating from the Bible of the Exodus and the entry into Canaan places it in about the 15th century BC, which is a really interesting time in the Eastern Mediterranean. This is when the cultures there are just transitioning out of the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. So this is, this is the latest technology. This is, this is the atomic bomb of the, of the Mediterranean world. And I just, I find it interesting that you get that detail in the text, that the iron also, that goes to God, because it, it really does a good job of letting you know this is a real world story happening in a real world. And we have Israel going in and in faithfulness to the command, putting everything to the sword and then taking, as we're going to find out later, most of the dedicated articles and, and giving them into the treasury of God. But we also get this note that the two spies, Joshua commanded them to go in and fulfill their oath to deliver out Rahab the prostitute and her, her whole household. And that's the, just, again, that lovely picture that God knows how to save. Out of a general disaster, God knows how to save those who are faithful to him. This is very much following in the same vein of Noah and his family and Lot and his family, of God redeeming a people out of a general destruction. And just like that, just like in both those cases, the line of the Savior is going to come through this family that's been pulled out of a disaster. Um, we, we think of, we, we think of uh, Noah, and we know that everybody kind of comes through Noah, so we're used to thinking about that. But also, when God preserves Lot, um, it's not exactly one of the proudest moments in the Bible, but, but Lot becomes the father of the nation of Moab, and Moab is going to give us Ruth, 
and Ruth is going to be in the genealogy of both David and Jesus. So you, you again, you have this God knows how to save those who are his, and he preserves that line. Now they bring her and her whole family, and again, I love that. It's everybody in her family. There's a, there's a story in the book of Acts where Paul is thrown into jail, and he's singing praises, and there's an earthquake, and the jail is shaken, and the doors are opened, and the jailer runs in, and he's like, oh my gosh, everybody has escaped. You know, I'm on the hook for this. I better kill myself. And Paul says, hey, no, 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 we're all still here. We're all still here. Don't hurt yourself. And the jailer is so overwhelmed. He says, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? This is amazing. And Paul tells him, believe and be baptized, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. So there is this wonderful, wonderful theme here of the faithfulness of one person can just result in the redemption of a whole group. And I love that. So they bring her and they put her outside the camp because even though she will become part of Israel right now, she and her family are not part of the nation of Israel and they're trying not to defile themselves. Now you'll remember when they came out of Egypt that God let them take the gold and treasure of Egypt with them. And we talked about how the word that's used there actually, you know, it gets translated plundered, but it actually means redeemed. Well, God trusted the, the nation to take that gold. Uh, he had a purpose for it when they went into the Exodus, you know, because there was a lot of gold needed in the worship. But what they did with it is they made a cow. So this time God doesn't, <laughs> he's just like, all right, you just, you just bring it all into my treasury and it'll be dedicated but even in that case, we're going to find out that it's not, not completely followed. And it ends with Joshua pronouncing a solemn curse on the city of Jericho, saying, you know, if cursed is anybody who tries to rebuild this. You know, at the cost of his firstborn son, he'll lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest, he'll set up its gates. Why is he saying that? Well, this is a pagan stronghold. This is the pinnacle of a culture that worships another god. And he's saying, don't let that happen again. Now, Jericho, just because there are, there are a limited number of sites that are good for building cities in the Middle East, you know, the combination of water and, and croplands and being defensible, there's a limited number of cities, of sites where you can build a city. So eventually there will be another city here. But it won't be this pagan Jericho. It will be a Jewish city. It will be a different entity. So here we have the start of God doing something new. He's promised his people to give them this land, and this is the beginning of him giving them this land. And he is, in this first and greatest conquest, he's doing all the work. Now, later on, Israel will have to fight. Israel will do more of the work themselves. But it's very, very key that this first victory is handed to them by the Lord. Sometimes, when you're going on a long campaign, it is very, very helpful if you can remember that the first steps of it were given to you by God.
Thank you.